Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Well, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Uh, let me say today to you in here at our 9 a.m. here at Providence Road and online, um, today's a big day. Our launch team for uh, Mercy Northeast is worshiping together for the first time tonight. Um, yeah, you can celebrate that. It's a big day for them. Um, I do want you to be praying for them as well. Uh, if you're new with us, we're launching a new work on the north side of the city. We're calling it Mercy Northeast. It's Mercy Church. Uh, we are now one church in two gatherings, same mission, vision, values in both, same worship gathering. They'll be meeting in the evenings for a few weekends. I'll be preaching there as well in the evenings. Um, in fact, tonight on their first time uh, gathering as a launch team, they've got at least four or five people getting baptized um, as professions of faith tonight. Um, now, I do want to say, y'all, this is a big change for us as a church uh, yes, but we do it because we send to God's people to all people. Uh, we want to be a multiplying church, and I believe God has given us a beautiful picture of multiplication today. Uh, because not only do we get to baptize four or five people up at uh, Mercy Northeast, but we are baptizing in both of our services this morning here at Providence Road, uh, which is, yeah, you should, there's, this is for you to celebrate. The Lord is moving people's lives, and, and feel free to to continue the celebration we had in worship as well. Um, I'm telling you, especially uh, to us here at Providence Road, as we send out, I think God is going to do some renewing work among us if we will step out in faith together and serve God's people together and serve this community that the Lord has placed us in together. Uh, so we got to take a deep breath and recommit ourselves together uh, to the work God has called us to. I will tell you kind of a crazy thing I was not expecting was when our um, ops director, Mandy Foster, told me this morning, she said, I'm all excited because I'm like, finally, we've got more capacity in our services, you know, um, at Providence Road. And recognizing that these limitations COVID has placed us in, uh, that we'll be able to, anybody that wants to RSVP can and can come. And then we find out yet Friday night or yesterday morning that both of our services at Providence Road are at capacity again even after we sent out all those folks to Northeast. I'm like, so just know that we're continuing to brainstorm together and we're thankful for what the Lord is doing among us and we're gonna keep working to, to figure it out. But I do wanna encourage you to step off the sidelines and get plugged in around here. I mean, you can see even just in our, our worship set this morning, um, I love it when we go acoustic, I really do, and um, I'm glad we get to do that from time to time, but also recognize we sent some musicians um, up to Northeast, and so we're going to need more of those, right? Which is great. It's a chance for you to come and help lead God's people, but that's not the only spot. There's plenty of ways you can serve however you are gifted, and the Lord has uh, gifted you. We want you to step off the sidelines and, and serve around here. Um, listen, I, just, I hope you'll pray above all. Um, I really do, because in works like this, um, I, I just, I know that... We're not perfect, and the enemy loves to sow disunity, especially in new things. So please spend time covering our church in prayer. All right. In fact, I want to pray for us 
as we get into our, our message today. Father, would you um, guard your church, protect your church, let us submit to uh, you, to your spirit's leading, your name, to your name alone be glory. Uh, would what we sang this morning be true of us down, down deep? We are getting ready for the marriage feast of the Lamb. Uh, we want to exalt him and him alone. Father, help me to preach your word this morning, I pray in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke 22, so you got your Bible. And while you're making your way there, recently, uh, Courtney and I, my wife, Courtney and I, got to spend some time with some close friends that we've just known for a long time, and all of our kids are the same age. We have four, they have three, and so it's a road trip up to see them, and we get there, and it's like as soon as we hit the door, the kids just, whoom, they go inside, and we don't see them again, right, until, uh, right up until dinner time, and I tell you what, though, like, they're up there playing. They don't want to hang out with the parents, right, um, and when you have a whole bunch of kids together, you, you usually have to repeat yourself, quite a few times to get some points across, all right? Like even as we're, as we're going in, they're running away, like, don't put your shoes there, don't put your shoes there, don't put your shoes there, you know, over and over again, because they're not listening. They're excited. They're, they're playing with friends. Did you wash your hands? Did you wash your hands? Did you wash your hands, right? Those kind of things over and over again. But there's one thing you do not have to repeat multiple times, all right? So dinner time rolls around, right? And we're quietly preparing while they're upstairs, lest the herd descend before we are ready, right? And so we get done, and then all I do is just go up to, now these are these children that have such a hard time hearing anything, right? I go up um, halfway up the stairs, the, the doors are shut, and I say, let's eat. And you know the opening of the Kentucky Derby, like when all the doors at the same time, and boom, they just make it, and somebody's going to be the first one down the stairs? That's what happened to me, just descended on us, right? They, let, let's eat. That is the favorite word of a bunch of upper elementary and middle school age kids, right? Let's see. That's my favorite words in the English language, right? Um, and it's, you know, it's one of these things that the dinner table, right? Dinner table in most places in the world, it's not just about meeting hunger needs. It's about connection. It's about relationship, right? I think about even those kids. They all poured around one of the tables. The, the adults had the adult table and the kids' table, and they're laughing and telling jokes, and, you know, it stop saying that. You know, that sort of thing. We're back to that. But they're having fun together because there, there's acceptance at the dinner table, right? There's fellowship. It's the place where you go from stranger to friend to close friend. In fact, there's a Harvard medical study that, that has stuck with me um, several years ago. It documented the social importance of family mealtimes for children. It showed that kids who ate regular, regularly with their parents were considerably healthier. They were, listen to me, 72% less likely to experience depression, struggle with self-esteem, have suicidal thoughts, develop eating disorders, or use illegal drugs than those who did not have that. The table matters. And the bigger the occasion, the more it says about the relationship. I mean, think about, let's say a guy comes up to you and says, hey, I'd like to take you out to dinner. Tuesday night, you want to go to dinner with me? Well, that's more than just, would you like to eat food where I eat food? You know what I mean? Like that's saying something about a relationship that's desired to be built. But then think about a different way of saying that. What if he comes and says, hey, I'd like us to have dinner with my parents? Well, that's a different occasion altogether, right? Now the relationship is making some real progress, getting even closer. But then if he says, I want us to have Thanksgiving dinner with my parents. Well, now you're kind of going like, 
that what is it, ring on it kind of thing, the dancing around? Like, you're expecting something if he's going that far that he's inviting you to Thanksgiving dinner with the parents. The, the table matters. It's an invitation. I can't do things, okay? It's an invitation into relationship. Look, today in Luke 22, we're going to see Jesus gather his followers around the table for the most important meal of the Jewish calendar year, the Passover meal. And in this meal, he's going to go so far as to redefine the Passover meal. And in doing so, he's going to extend an invitation that will deepen their relationship with God, with God himself. And as he extends it to his disciples, he extends that invitation to you and I this morning. So I want to extend this invitation to you. The invitation from Jesus today is such good news to you. It's an invitation to those who don't know Christ to come and sit down at his table. It's an invitation to those of you that have been wandering away from God or to those of you who are so steeped in your sin that you feel like I can't be really close to God right now. It's an invitation to finally see Jesus as something more than a forgiveness transaction or a set of like a moral code to follow. It's an invitation to have your soul renewed as you sit down and meet with Jesus. It's an invitation to faithful Christ followers to come, sit down, and remember your first and greatest love. The sermon is an explanation, not a whole sermon today. It's an explanation of the communion meal. And I'm going to close the sermon by walking us through the taking of the elements of this meal. So if you're with us online, I want you to take a moment and go gather those elements um, before we keep going. But for those of us in here, as I walk through this passage in Luke 22, we're going to start in verse 7. I want to show you and maybe just remind you of who this God is that invites you to the table. Just like when, you know, you leave the table after a meal, you should know someone better. Yeah, I had dinner with them the other night. I had lunch with him or with her, and I got to know them better. We got to know each other a little bit better. A connection was made. Hopefully that strengthens the relationship. So I want to introduce you to the God who invites you to the table. We're going to start in verse 7, go to verse 20. I'm going to break it up into four sections. And at each section, I want to show you something else about this God. Y'all, this is a feast for our soul. So let's get started. Verse 7. You ready? Me and you, Crystal. I don't care what happens with the rest of these people we're in. Let's go. All right, verse 7. Then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. That's as far as we need to go. The meal we're looking at today, the Last Supper, as it's often called, maybe you've heard it referenced as, it's tied to the very heart of the Jewish people. Passover was and remains today a very holy celebration. The pinnacle of the calendar year, like I said, it celebrates God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. So listen to me. We're going to have some fun today. You have to understand the Passover meal in order to understand the meal that we're looking at this morning. All right? So for some of you, I know the idea of a Passover might be familiar for one reason or for another, but not for all of us. And for all of us, it's probably a good practice not to let such rich symbolism become quite so familiar, all right, so that it doesn't unpack us, so impact us. Excuse me. So to understand it, I'm going to do, if you've seen the movie Inception, I'm about to do a little Inception-like walk through the Old Testament, okay? Here's what's going to happen. In order to understand communion, you got to understand the Passover, yeah. all right? But in order to understand the Passover, you actually got to understand something going on all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, all right? So we're going to kind of 
make our way into the meaning and then the meaning of the meaning. And it's going to be really cool. All right. And I'm going to make it as easy as I can, you know, simple as I can so that you can follow along with me. All right. Now, Exodus chapter 13, you don't have to go there, but I'm just giving you these references for later. Okay. That's the story of the 10th and final plague. God says to Moses, all right, here's what's going to happen. If you're new to the Bible and you're like, what are plagues? I want to encourage you to go into the Bible. We got copies of scripture for you. Exodus, the first 20 chapters. Whoa. Awesome stuff, okay? But the 10th and final plague is in Exodus 13. God says to Moses, I'm going to kill every firstborn Egyptian. This is going to be the plague. This is going to be what it takes for Pharaoh, who's kind of like the king of Egypt, for Pharaoh to finally let the Israelites who are in slavery, finally let them go so they can worship him. And God says, here's the deal, Moses. Tell the people on the 14th day of the month, I want, you to, I want each of them to get a lamb, each home to take a lamb and on the 14th day, slaughter the lamb right at twilight. Now, what kind of lamb? Exodus 13, 5. Your lamb shall be, this is important, without blemish, a male, a year old, an unblemished lamb. Now, why? I mean, after all, like the meat's going to taste the same, whether the lamb has a blemish or it has like a, a mar- nick on its ear, like a blind eye or something like that, you know? Why? Why a perfect spotless lamb? Well, the reason for demanding for perfection, of course, is symbolic. The animal served as a reminder of the eventual deliverance that a perfect God was providing for his people as a process of making them holy like himself. Proper relating to God requires perfection. He is holy and perfect, and to be in his presence requires perfection and holiness. So, okay, then does eating this lamb that has been sacrificed somehow all of a sudden transform them into perfect beings so now they're acceptable to God? No. They're still human. But God receives their faith in him made evident through their obedience to this command. So now the logical question is, all right, we're hanging out in Passover. we got to sacrifice this lamb. If, if I'm you, I'm going, okay, why do we need to sacrifice an animal in order to have this relationship with God? Great question. You're such good students. So that lets us jump all the way over to Genesis 3. All right, the meaning behind the meaning. The meaning of this animal sacrifice. This is core theology. It's so good. When God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, it's yours. And he gave them freedom and he gave them boundaries. Those are not contradictions like our modern society thinks. Okay, boundaries actually create freedom. They don't limit it. Anyways, God says, enjoy my creation, reign and rule over it. But there's this one tree and I want you to eat from. If you eat from it, you will surely die. God gave them a moral boundary. Don't eat from that tree so that they would trust him. Right, because a true relationship, the bedrock of any true and honest and good relationship, of course, is trust. And so he wants them to trust him. Well, they eat from it. So now they're going to die. But in this amazing, if you pause to think about it, you Christians like like me that have been around the Bible a long time, we might overlook this. What's amazing to me is they don't die instantly. They should have died. But amazingly, what God does instead is he removes them from his presence. And then he makes a covering for them out of animal skin. Are you catch that? He covers them. Something died. Something had to die. So something died, but it was an animal. Death happened. It was an animal in order to provide the covering. And from that point on, in the history of God's people, 
animals were scapegoats, if you've ever heard that word, because it's usually a goat or, again, a lamb or a kid, you know, not kid, human kid, okay? Kid, child of a goat. You know what I'm talking about, right? Let's make sure offspring of goat. Understand what we're talking about here. That was used, that was used in order to pay for human sin. Death came to the lamb instead of to the people. God's judgment on sin was still judgment, but it was mercifully transferred to the animal instead of onto them. All right, now, that's Genesis 3, back into the Passover. All right, now we're in the meaning here. He says, Moses, tell the people, go take some of the blood and wipe it on the doorpost above the door of every Israelite home. That blood is going to be what separates Israel from Egypt. That blood will be what keeps the Israelites alive. I'm going to pass through Egypt at midnight. And when I do, I will pass over any house that has that blood. Now, again, a little aside, you're probably asking, does God really need this? I mean, has he got bad vision? Does he not know what's going on? Does he not know who's, up, who's inside each house? But look, this isn't for God. It's for them yeah. to display their trust in him. This is God personally sparing each household that trusts him, who places faith in him. And then he says, eat the lamb, eat it with, excuse me, eat it with unleavened bread. And in fact, I want you to eat this meal with your shoes on. I want you to eat it with your staff in hand, ready to walk into the freedom I am bringing for you. This is an MRE situation, okay? We eat ready to go. And at midnight, of course, the Spirit of God came into Egypt, killed every firstborn, every firstborn of the livestock, um, everyone except for those that had the blood over their doors. Then Pharaoh said, okay, you can go. And they went. Now, that's the meaning and the meaning of the meaning. Now, back into this meal that we're having. You guys still with me? All right, we're tracking. All right, the Passover meal was the meal eaten to remember. This is the first thing I want you to see about God. I told you we're going to pause like four different spots. First thing I want you to see, God is just and merciful at the same time. He is just, the God who's inviting you to come sit down at the table is just and merciful. He's a God of justice. He cannot let sin go. When his law is broken, payment must be made. And this is both wonderful and terrible news. All right? When I hear the question of why can't God just forgive, why not just let it go? That to me is a question asked by people who have never really experienced injustice. Justice is when restitution is made for wrongs done. And each of us has a tuning fork of justice that goes off in our hearts in one way or another. You either believe that wrongs should be made right or you believe in some form of just absolute anarchy. And God says, yes, there are eternal rights and wrongs and people will be held accountable for wrongs one day. That's great news. But it's also terrible news because it means we will be held accountable for our wrongs. Death comes to us just like it did to Adam and Eve. And yet at the table... We're reminded that God, since the time he has put humans on the earth, he loved them so much that he kept extending his mercy to them. He kept making a way, making a way for sin to be paid for. He made a way for Adam and Eve. He made a way for Abraham, right, when he's up there with Isaac and there's a ram in the thicket so that Isaac could be spared. He made a way at the Passover. He made a way through the sacrifices of Israel. He kept making a way so that his justice could be carried out and his people could be spared. 
if they would just repent of their sins and return to him. That's the God of the table. Listen, to come to the table, you have to repent. You have to turn from, your, you got to acknowledge that your sin is real, it's against God, and you got to turn from it. And you're going to have to trust him that when you turn from it, he is going to greet you with mercy. Not judgment. That's going to be put on the lamb. He's going to greet you with mercy. That's how much he loves you. I know that was a long explanation for verse 7, but now you're ready for the rest of this. Let's keep going. Verses 8 through 13, the next little section I want you to see here. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. Now, listen, the reason they say this is because there's a lot of people descending onto Jerusalem right now. Not easy to find a place to stay or anything like that. I mean, it's like finding a hotel room when, um, you know, the CIAA tournament a lot of times comes to, to Charlotte. It's like all the hotel rooms just vanish when that happens. Place is packed. Imagine like that plus the NCAA and the All-Star tournament all together coming, right? Where are we going to get a room for 13 guys? Try and put yourself in Peter and John's shoes. And, and as you do that, all right, in Peter and John's shoes, going, how are we going to figure out, problem solve this thing? I want you to hear Jesus's response. It's so great. Listen, he said to them. I don't know what emphasis he gave there, but I, I'll just like it. Listen, guys, listen. All right. He said to them, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. First of all, women normally carried water jugs this time in this, this era. This was a woman's task. So a man's going to come and meet you. It's a little specific. Follow him into the house he enters. Hopefully they introduce themselves, but they just go in. And then verse 11, tell the owner of the house, who's a different person. The teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? That's what I want you to tell this guy who owns this house. Peter and John are like, okay. And then let me get more specific, guys. That guy's going to show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. Like, what's the big deal? Just <laughs> do what I'm telling you to do. What's so hard about this? Look, this is what I love about this. This is the same Jesus who stands out on the water and says, Peter, get out of the boat. Come over here. Just step and walk and see. Guys, go walk into town. You'll find the donkey tied up. Guys, put your nets down on the side, that side over there. Watch what happens. Go home. Your faith has healed your daughter. Go and see. Y'all, this is not the first time Jesus gave his followers a very specific assignment, a very simple assignment. And if they went, if they would just trust him enough to, to do it, to take that step, they would experience his sovereign control over the world. And sure enough, verse 13, they went and found it. How? Just as he had told them. And so they prepared the Passover. Oh, I hope you don't overlook this because, man, the symbolism gets richer and richer in the verses to come. But I want us to recognize what Jesus is showing them as he prepares them to receive a message about his death and resurrection. This simple miracle, he shows them that God is both sovereign and kind. The God of the table is sovereign and kind. Listen, God is sovereign. He reigns with absolute authority and control over all things with a word. He spoke the worlds into existence. He speaks and demons flee. He speaks and the dead rise. He is absolutely in control. Proverbs 21.1. A king's heart is like a river in the Lord's hand. He directs it as he pleases. Which means he controls the thoughts of kings and rivers. You get that? 
And by obeying this simple assignment, Peter and John experience Jesus' faithfulness to his word. God does what he says. And inviting them into such a simple step that resulted in experiencing God's faithfulness, that's kindness. That's the kindness of God to his followers. It happened just like he said it would. It's huge because, listen, what we saw last week at the empty tomb, his followers are going to come in and some angels are going to say the same thing. Why are you so confused? He's risen. It happened just like he said it would. And he offers the same kindness to all of us that will trust and obey him today. Y'all, some of you are starving for the kindness of God. And the table is meant to draw you back into it. That if you'll trust him enough to, to if you have the, like, the trust, the readiness to eat this meal, that means you trust in his death and resurrection as provision for your sin. If you trust him with that, then trust him enough to obey what he says about some practical areas of your life. And then experience his kindness towards you as you trust him. Experience his sovereign control. In his kindness, he has set it up so that when you obey him and when I obey him, we actually experience joy. We experience him. So trust him with your money. Be generous, radically generous with it. Taste and see if the Lord is not good when you obey him there. Taste and see. Trust him and sacrifice this week. Sacrifice for your spouse. Choose to forgive your spouse. Taste and see if the walls of coldness that have been built up don't start to melt away through the love of Christ. Taste and see. For some of you, I think this could be a light switch moment in your relationship with God. What if the commands of Scripture are not just obligations you're supposed to fulfill out of duty so that God will approve of you and absolve you? What if instead God's commands are opportunities for you to step in and experience his kindness? What if the commands are open doors to experience the miracle of his sovereign, faithful kindness to us who believe? The God of the table is inviting you into that kind of relationship. That's a very different relationship than the one that says, i got to try and prove myself to the cosmic judge. It's a very different one. Oh, that we would embrace his commands as invitations to experience his kindness towards us who believe. Now, with all that set up, now we arrive at the table, verse 14. When the hour came, everything's so rich with symbolism here. When the hour came, <laughs> Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. When the hour came, Jesus said in Mark 1 about himself that the fullness of time had come with his arrival. When the hour came, God had been preparing this hour for centuries. And they recline at the table. And the reason they recline at the table is it's almost in a sense of fulfillment. This was the practice because they no longer have to eat ready to run. They have been set free. And so now they, rec they recline. Relax with one another. So good. Then he said to them, verse 15, I fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. There is a hope that I want you to hear right here. 
that Jesus is speaking into communion. It's the hope of the wedding feast that is going to come for all of us at the end of days. I want to show you over in Revelation 19. Let us be glad, rejoice, give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of who? The lamb. There is a forward-looking hope to our practice of communion. We are, as Peter says in his epistle, strangers and aliens in this foreign land. We are exiles. You know, the Jews have a, had a saying that started um, during biblical times, finally recorded in the, not until the 15th century, um, but they would say it's like a benediction at the end of the Passover Seder. All right, it is this, say it in Hebrew. Now remember, I learned my Hebrew in a Christian seminary, so if some of y'all are like from Jewish background, give me a little bit of break here. But they would say, Lashana Habayah, Be'erushalayim, next year in Jerusalem. See, they would eat it together in exile. And it's this hope, it's this hope that one day, and maybe it's next year, God's going to restore his people to his holy city. And so that's how they close their Passover Seder next year in Jerusalem. Y'all, for Christians, we recognize looking through the lens of the cross and the resurrection and the lens of Scripture and what it tells us that our hope is not in God's political victory or reestablishment just on earth, but it's in New Jerusalem. It's in the heaven to come. We're looking there to heaven itself and to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so instead of next year in Jerusalem, maybe it's what we should say as we finish our benediction to communion should be next time in heaven. Maybe next time in heaven together. And what I want you to see in this as Jesus looks forward to that day is that God is eternal and victorious. That's the God that invites you to the table. There is an eternity and God reigns over it. And as we take communion, we don't do so in sorrow. This is not a funeral. It is a meal of anticipation that one day, maybe next time, we'll be together at the feast. This meal is but a shadow of the feast. I mean, especially if you're here in person, right? This is like a cracker and a swig of grape juice. This, you know, this is our help to you, just a shadow, right? A dim shadow, you know? Not exactly a feast, but one day we will feast together in eternal glory. And my confidence in that day is what carries me in this day, what gives me hope. And then I get to take this meal with all of you. That strengthens my hope on days and weeks and months where I really need it, where I've been struggling. Every single person that takes that meal, and only Christians, if you're not a Christian, do not take these elements, and Scripture would say drink judgment on yourself. Don't take it. But every single one that takes it is preaching a sermon. It's testifying. Each one of us, we are testifying. We have a hope in that day, and our hope in that day is carrying me in this day. It's a public collective agreement that Jesus is Lord, that I need the forgiveness he offers. I believe he's won victory over sin and death and hell, and I'll share in that victory in his very presence one day. Now we're ready. Verse 19, sitting here with the disciples, he forever changes the meaning of the Passover meal. And really, by the time we get to this point, 
I just want to tell you, regardless of where your faith background is, this is going to be like the, the rubber meets the road. You can either believe it or not, but he's going to be clear. This is an articulation of the gospel truth, the core of our faith. He took the bread, he gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread, the unleavened bread, called the bread of affliction, Deuteronomy 16.3. It was to symbolize now. What once symbolized the affliction of the Israelites in slavery now is meant to symbolize the affliction of Jesus on the cross. The affliction he took as he paid for the sins of the whole world. The affliction and the punishment that we were meant to experience for our sin, all of that he takes up on the cross. And y'all, he knows how fickle our memories are. So he says, keep the table in front of you. Do this in remembrance of me. Maybe you come from a background uh, where your church held up something that was called uh, transubstantiation. It would be the, the big word that just meant that the bread and the cup actually transform into Christ's very body. And we would say, no, what he's calling us to is instead a symbol. But, but when we talk about symbol, don't let, that water, don't let that water it down too much. Like this is a special means of grace that God has given us to remind us, fill our hearts afresh with what we already know to be true. And I think of it like my youngest daughter. When we're just standing there hanging out together, her name's Hattie, and I can look down at her and say, Hattie, I love you. She's like, I know, Dad. Right? She's super fun, and it's easy for me and her. We love hanging out together. I love you, Hattie. I know, Dad. That, something different happens, though. When I pick her up, throw her up in the air, try not to hit her head on the ceiling again, did it once, and we throw her up, and then <laughs> catch her, right? And we do something called the Daddy Hattie hug, and it is like this big old hug that we give, right? And I say, I love you, Hattie. What's happening there? Truth is not changing. She is experiencing what she knows to be true. That's what's happening in communion. It's the father reaching out and saying, I love you. I want you to remember it. Even the, the tactile nature of communion, I want you to remember again what you already know to be true and let it stir your affections for me once again. And it's here. It's here. Oh, this bread is the gracious reminder of his grace. Something had to be done about your sin. Your sin disfellowshipped you from God. And the justice and mercy of God are coming back together at the cross of Christ. And you're remembering it as you hold the bread. And then verse 20, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Having repurposed the bread, he now repurposes the cup. The cup that represents the blood of the lamb that represents the blood of the pure, spotless lamb that used to be put on, sprinkled on the altar for the forgiveness of sins of God's people. He says, no longer will you sacrifice animals. In fact, Hebrews 10 is going to say those animals couldn't take away sins anyways, but this man, after one offering, took away the sins forever for those who believe. And Christ's words are now a fulfillment of, I'm going to drop you back into the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31. It's this prophecy of this new covenant that's to come. Look at this. Look, the days are coming. I'm just going to read you 31, 32, 33, four verses. The days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This one is not going to be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt and said, listen, you obey my statutes and I'll be your God. 
My covenant, by the way, that they broke, even though I'm their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I'll put my teaching within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. No longer we have to teach his neighbor, his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least to the greatest, he's leveling the playing field. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. The new covenant. He's going to change our hearts. That was always the problem. The law wasn't bad. It was written externally on stone. We needed internal change. Something down in the depths of your soul and my soul has got to change. And Jesus is saying he's come to change hearts, to replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. Brothers and sisters in the family of Christ, this is why Jesus says in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you. The only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the new covenant. And he says, I'm not just going to teach you about God. No, by believing in him, you're sitting down at his table. But the table is just an image to point you to a much richer relationship with God where God's spirit actually dwells within you. The table is always with you. You can always sit down with him. This is the last thing I want you to see about God. He is sacrificially loving and he is imminent. Imminent means within you. He is present. Even though he's transcendent above time and space, he's imminent right there with you. And the table reminds us of that. The body and blood of Christ, he's the one all of history was preparing for. He was foreshadowed in the animal slaughtering to make a covering for Adam and Eve. He's foreshadowed in the pure, spotless lamb slaughtered to cover the people of Israel in Exodus. He's the one foreshadowed year after year with the sprinkling on the altar. It was all pointing to him. And he says, now the fullness of time has come. So we should cry out with John the Baptist. What's our, our response? Behold, the lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And he's with us. Matthew 28, to the very ends of the age, he's with us. He's with me. He's with you. He goes before us. He goes behind us. His presence is there to comfort and strengthen us. And if you are in Christ, he is in you. Communion is crying out to you. Remember. Remember God who is just and merciful. Remember God who is sovereign and kind. Remember God who is eternal and victorious. And remember God who is sacrificially loving and imminent. Remember. And we should take it, church. We should take this meal, as we're going to do in just a second, in holy awe and worship of the God that we see in Revelation 5. In fact, this is how I want to close the sermon and transition into communion. I want to read Revelation 5, 8 through 14 over you. It will also be on the screen. This is John looking getting a a glimpse into eternity around the throne. John says, when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You, lamb, are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they'll reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and also of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. I want you to take your hearts there. I want you to go there. Allow, allow yourself But God has given us a little glimpse. That's why he's given us this glimpse of heaven. It's to to widen the eyes of our heart. He's peeled back eternity a little bit to show you what's coming. And that's reality, what's coming. Would you pray with me for just a second before we take these holy elements? Your prayer is, is simply this. It starts in in worship. Thank you, God. If you're a Christian, thank you, God, for saving me. Christian, let the truths of who God is, oh, let it humble you. Let it warm your heart and mind. Let it stir faith right now. Stir hope right now. Take the things that have been the center of your attention that haven't been that God that you just heard in Revelation and just set them down at his feet. God, I repent turning back from from these things that have been given preeminence in my life. And I'm, I'm lifting my eyes again and saying thank you that you are just, you are merciful, you're you're sacrificially loving. You're imminent. You're close. You're you're eternal. You're victorious. I love you, God. Thank you. If you're not a Christian, I just want to invite you to receive the message that the symbol is shouting to you. Apart from Christ, you and I are dead in our sin. You are eternally hopeless without God. I don't say that from a place of judgment. I say that from a place of fellow sinner. You need salvation. Eternity is real. You need saving from your sin, and you can have it today. You say, God, I I realize now I need you to save me. I see what Jesus did on the cross and in the empty tomb, and I believe that was for me. The lamb was slain so that I could be forgiven and I receive it today. Thank you, God, for saving me. In that posture of prayer, I want you to take the communion elements that you got when you came in. I want you to pull out the bread. I'll take you back to Jesus' own words. No need for any more words than that. 
He took the bread and he gave thanks. (laughs) And then he broke it and he gave it to them. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take, eat, and remember Christ. Thank you, Father. In the same way, verse 20, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Church, take, drink, and remember Christ. Thank you, Father, for your grace. We remember what Christ has done for us. Our victory is secured with him. And because of what he did for us, we look forward to a day one day where we will gather with the saints from ages past around the throne and cry out in a way that fills our own hearts as we give praise. We will be filled up crying out, Worthy is the Lamb. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.